It's been an awesome weekend for us. Uh, my name is Jake, by the way. I'm an elder here. I help lead our youth. Um, and so D-Night Weekend has been awesome. Um, very, uh, you got a glimpse of it this, this morning in our time of worship together when we were singing. Um, so before we, we, we jump in, I just want to say this. L- don't let the worship stop at when the music stops. We believe that God's word are the very words of God. We believe that it is truth, and we believe that the truth sets us free. And so the reason that those songs are so impactful is because they are packed with the truth of God's word. It's, the music sounds awesome. They do an amazing job, do they not? And we're, we're very thankful for that. We do it in worship to the Lord. But the reason those songs are impactful is because we are singing truth about who God is and what that means for us. And so that means that when we, when we preach, we, we, we care a lot about God's word. We care a lot about preaching because we are talking about the very words of God. And so don't let the worship stop, all right? It's the way that we're transformed. Um, and so to stay, stay zoned in now this morning as, as we jump in. We've been going through, um, we've been going through this book, uh, Knowing God's Truth, um, last week, uh, Andrew talked about um, the question, what is man? He had three points. He, he talked about that we are created by God, that we are made in God's image, the Mago Dei, and that we're made for the glory of God. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the question, what is sin? What is sin? Um, and I think it's, the reason I wanted to mention what Andrew was talking about is because it's in light of who God is and who we are that's, that sin makes sense. And, y'all, I feel the weight of this message this morning. Um, coming out of a weekend like D-Now, uh, it's a very, I feel very worshipful, but also I can't talk about sin without having a heavy heart because it's the thing that separates us from God. It's the thing that keeps a, keeps a distance between those of us who are believers and God. And so I can't, it, it, it kind of stinks that we have to talk about something that's heavy on a morning like this, but we, we must because it is God's truth and we need to know the truth about it. So for many of us, when we hear the word sin, we might think about various outward actions that we're taught not to do by our parents growing up, murder, Stealing, lying, cheating, adultery, so forth. And of course, all those things are the end, not the end end result of sin, but they're the outward actions of sin. Um, But what I want us to consider this morning is what do all of those sins have in common? Think about that. What do all those, when we read lists of sins in the Bible, here's, here's an example. Romans 1, 29 to 31 says this, Paul writes this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So my question in light of what I just said is this. What does gossiping have in common with murder? What does being a hater of God have to do with being disobedient to parents? Um, That's the type of question that we're kind of looking to this morning. What is sin? Not Not just what are the actions of sin. At its heart, what is it? 
And so that's what we're going to be looking to this morning. If you haven't um, picked up one of our Knowing God's Truth books yet, please do. Um, I've been going through with a couple of guys, and each week we're actually reading the chapter in advance of the sermon, which has been awesome because kind of coming into it, um, we know where Pastor Andrew, whoever's preaching, is going, and it's been so helpful. So if you haven't done that yet, um, we have a suggested donation of $10 for those. You can get them over at Next Steps. If, if you can't afford that, that's okay. Just pick one up and jump in with us. Um, so, like I said, sin, it's a weighty subject. Sin is the problem of the whole Bible. Sin, it, the Bible, it's a story of God's redemption, his saving work for us. The reason he had to save us is because we are separated from him because of our sin. We are destined for eternal hell, the Bible teaches us, and destruction unless God does something about it. What is the thing that stands between me and God? What's the thing that stands between me and eternal life? Sin. And so we want to have a biblical understanding of, of what that is. And so as we jump into my first point, what is sin? Let's, let's pray together. Um, Lord, please help us now. Come. We can't, we can't understand this topic fully without your help, without your spirit. I pray that even, even as we talk about a subject like sin that's weighty and can bring us down, that it would actually bring forth a sense of awe before you. Because yes, I am, a, I, we are sinful people, and yet you have not abandoned us, you have not left us on our own, we are not without hope. So please help us now, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, I want to start with the definition of uh, Basically, my, the reason I also I mentioned the book is because basically everything from my sermon is either loosely or very closely tied to everything that's in the book, um, so you'd be very helped by reading it. Um, but anyways, I want to start by, by reading the definition that John Nielsen, the author of that book, gives for sin. This is his definition. He says, any, sin is any lack of conformity to the perfect will and character of God. Sin is any lack of conformity to the perfect will and character of God. So this means anytime we blatantly disobey God, murder, stealing, lying, cheating, when we break a Ten Commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, that is sin. This also means, church, when we prefer anything other than God and His will and His character, when we delight in things that are not according to His will and His character, that is also sin. Um, think back again with me to those, that list of sins that I mentioned in my introduction. Um, what do all those things have in common? Again, it's we are preferring the things that are not what God has prescribed for us, the things that are not according to God's will. Um, one very helpful way I've heard evil and sin explained before is uh, the relationship between light and darkness. Um, I've, I've heard it this way. Sin itself is something that is opposite to God, okay? Opposite to his will. Um, the difference between God and sin, it's, it's a lot like the difference between light and darkness. Darkness is something that, darkness really isn't something of substance, right? It's, darkness is a lack of light. Um, think about, uh, Wherever light exists, darkness cannot exist. Wherever light exists, darkness cannot exist. We all know this to be true. You go into a pitch black dark room, you turn on a light, the darkness goes away. Wherever there is light, there is no darkness. 
Um, You turn off the light and the darkness comes back. God's relationship to sin is like that. God is light. Where God exists, sin cannot exist. And that is why our definition of sin is any lack of conformity to God and his will. Um, That's why, for example, in the Bible we see instances like in Exodus when God appears to the Israelites on Mount Sinai, he comes down and he tells Moses, tell the people do not even touch the edge of the mountain because if they do, they will die. God cannot exist where sin exists. Or we, or we see in 2 Samuel, the Israelites were bringing the Ark of the Covenant. Remember this story? Uh, it held the tables of the law of God that he had given to Moses. As it was being carried, um, I believe it was being carried back to uh, uh, the Israelites had just uh, retrieved it back, and the, one of the oxen that were helping support it stumbled, and Uzzah, who was an Israelite, he, he stuck out his hand to catch the ark because he thought, we don't want it to touch the ground. And, and as he touched it, he was struck dead. Sin cannot exist where God exists. Sin creates distance from God. Sin is anything opposed to God and his will. And also when we talk about sin, we must talk about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, who were the first people created in the Garden of Eden. Sin has not always existed in the world. God created the earth to be perfect. We were created by him perfectly. We lived in harmony with God without sin. But Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God's command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and, of good, good and evil. And when they did that, the consequences of sin entered the world. Death. And every person is born into sin. We've, we talked about this during D-Now uh, this weekend. We talked about in, in Adam, we have all inherited a sinful nature. Um, Psalm 51.5 says this. David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, And in sin did my mother conceive me. Every person is born with what we would call a sin nature. A sin nature. Um, Let me introduce you to a theological term. Um, John Nielsen covers it in his book, if you haven't heard it before, called total total depravity. Total depravity. When we are born, when we come into the the world, because of the first sin of Adam, we are all totally depraved. Um, uh, Nielsen's, um, his... Uh, description of this term is this. He says this, what do we mean when we use the term total depravity to describe the human condition? We mean that human beings are completely sinful and fallen in every way. Depravity refers to fallenness, sin, and ungodliness. Total depravity then implies that we are completely fallen and therefore totally separated from God. Totally separated from God. This means that every part of what we are as people has been tainted with sin. It's been tainted with darkness. And that's very important for us to point out, church, because I think that this is a a human issue, but especially in our culture, we generally think that we are good people. Um, You you walk up to a random person. Maybe you've seen videos like this on YouTube um, where, uh, you know, an evangelist will walk up to somebody on a college campus and they'll say, do you think you're good? And usually they'll say, yeah, I think I'm a good person. Or do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? And usually that person will say, 
yeah, I think I will. I've done more good things than bad. I think God will let me into heaven. And that, that line of thinking, it permeates the church. We often start to think that I can, I can stand before God because of my own goodness. And that's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Um, you see, when we answer that way, we fail to recognize that the Bible describes the human condition as totally depraved. People are not generally good. Um, I, I've, heard, I've heard people ask the question oftentimes, Christians ask this question of, well, yes, I know that if someone doesn't believe in Jesus, they won't go to heaven when they die, but what if someone, I mean, they don't do bad things, like they live a good life, they, you know, they go to church, um, so on and so forth. Will they really not go to heaven? And that's a faulty question, church, because there are no good people. There are no good people. That is a hard truth. Um, none of us live a good moral life. We're not capable. All that we do is tainted with sin. This mean, means, church, that none of us here there's nothing about us inherently that makes us more worthy of God's acceptance. When we, when we look at our relationship with God, we don't say, I did this, and therefore God accepted me. We say, God did this for me. My standing before him is because all of what he did for me. Um, even compared to the worst of people, we often do this, do we not? We look at, we, we watched a documentary about a serial killer or we look at a murderer, we hear about a court case, and we say, at least I'm not as bad as that person. When we do that, we fail to recognize the way that sin has permeated our lives. The reason we, we can't fathom, we often hear this question too. I mean, I know that if anybody places their faith in Jesus, they'll go to heaven, but what about the murderer? What about the rapist? Will that person really be allowed to go to heaven if they just place their faith in Jesus? That's a hard question. But the reason we can't fathom it is because we don't understand the depth of our own sin. Sin doesn't only express itself in the terrible outward acts of a criminal, but also in the hearts of you and me and every single person that has lived on this earth, minus one person. Sin is more expansive than what we think or realize. When we say that sin is anything opposed to God and his will, yes, we mean outward acts of sin, but we also mean, I mentioned this earlier, sinful, prefer sinful preferences, desires, attitudes of the heart. Um, our definition of sin, if true, it means that, yes, any blatant disobedience to God is sin, but also when we prefer anything besides God and his will and what he prescribes for us in his word, when we delight in things that are not of him, that is sin. The Bible teaches us this. This is in the Bible. Think about the way that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about adultery and murder. First, murder. Matthew 5, 21, he says, You've heard that it was said to those of, you, to, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's an inward heart issue. 
Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, it's not only the act of adultery, the act of murder that is sin, it is the inward heart issue. Two more verses, I just want to drive this point home. It's It's important. The existence of sin, it's not only sinful actions, but our heart, heart issues as well. Romans 7, 5 says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 2 Peter 3, 3, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Sinful desires. I think... I think I've, I've tried to make this point. Sin is not, it's not just our actions. It goes all the way down. We are totally depraved. We must, church, we must take this seriously. Even for those of us that are Christians, we still live in this old fleshly body. We still have old fleshly desires, and we cannot take this lightly. So the reason we can't take this lightly, and I, this is going to bring me to my second point, what is God's response to sin? We've talked about what sin is. What is God's response to sin? And where John Nielsen goes in the book, it's Romans 1, and so that's where I want to go as well. Um, you can follow along with me if you'd like. I'm going to be jumping from verse to verse, so it might be easier for you just to listen or, or see the verses on the screen. But I, I want to start at Romans 1.18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In 121, he writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In verse 23, he then says, In exchange, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In verse 28, he says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then in verse 32, hear this, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you follow Paul's line of thinking here? He says, God's wrath, so in 118, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Do you see how that fits with our definition of sin? Anything opposed to God, ungodliness. That is sin. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. His justice comes against it. Um, He says, Paul writes, the reality of God is plain to us. It's all around us in the world that he created in his invisible attributes Later on, Paul talks about how the, the law is written on our hearts, and so that's another testimony as to how we can know that there is a creator. Um, and yet, what we do instead of embracing that truth in our natural self is we suppress that truth in our minds. We exchange in the negative way. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And we worship the creation rather than the creator. And what he says here, Paul is, what he's saying is, as we do this, God gives us over to our sin. He gives us over to the hardness of our sin. God is patient. God is loving. 
and yet sin hardens our hearts. He gives us over to a debased mind. He gives us over to deeper and deeper sin, deeper and deeper ignorance. And as we pursue, we pursue the things that God has forgiven, or I'm sorry, forbidden, he gives us over. And before you know it, we, we start rejecting all kinds of truth about God. We see it in the world about God's existence, about his goodness, about his righteousness, his justice, everything about him. And in the end, when that is our pursuit, God gives sin what it deserves, and that is death. I'll read it again, Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let me drive this home. Paul, Paul later, he goes on to say this in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Sin deserves death. Do you remember what God told Adam and Eve in the garden? If they, if they disobeyed his word, what would happen? You will surely die. James, in the book of James, he gives us sort of the life cycle of sin. He says this in James 1:13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, it, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, the actions of sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the testimony of Scripture, that God is good. He created everything perfectly. He created us without sin. And yet we prefer the things that are not of God. We do not prefer God naturally. We prefer the things of this world. And because God is holy, because God is righteous and just, he can't be in the presence of this sin that we have pursued. And so he gives it what it deserves. Death. I deserve, in my natural self, punishment and death. It would be right for me to die because of my sin at every level of my life. That is true for you as well. And yet, we really struggle to believe this, do we not? We make excuses for our sin. We make excuses for the sins of others. Um, this... It is hard for us to believe, I've heard this question before, are we, is it really fair, fair, is it really fair that God would send people to hell simply because they disobeyed one little tiny rule like don't eat the fruit? Or is it really fair that God would send someone to hell because they lied one time? And that question, it brought to, it brought to mind for me a story that I, I once heard from um, a pastor, he was I think it was in a sermon that he was teaching. His name's R.C. Sproul. He was a theologian, a pastor, a teacher, and earlier on in his ministry, he tells of a story of, um, he, he taught at a Bible school, and their, the students' grades were made up, I think, primarily of like four papers. So four papers, 100% of your grade, you're thinking like a fourth of your grade is each of these papers. So it's a pretty big deal. And um, so, you know, he would give the due dates for these papers at the beginning of, of the semester so the students knew when these papers were due. And, and what would happen is the first one would come around and, you know, not everybody turns in their papers. So 10 to 15%, let's say, of those students come without their papers. 
and Sproul's kind of going down his list of people of who turned in their papers, and he comes to the people who haven't turned them in yet, and, uh, you know, he, hey, where's your paper? And, you know, the students look very distraught. They're like, they are, you know, they feel terrible because they've, they don't have their paper, and, and they beg him, please, would you, would you, in your kindness, just give us one more day to turn this paper in? And, you know, after some time of that, he says, okay, okay, I'll give you another day. I'll give you another day. Okay, so that's the first paper. The next paper rolls around, same thing, but maybe some more students this time show up without their paper. Um, and same kind of thing, they're, they're distraught. They're like, they have all kinds of good excuses for why they don't have their paper that day. Um, and, and Sproul, he kind of relents again, and he's like, okay, I'll give you another day. I'll give you another day. And same thing happens again. And this time, more students show up without their paper. Same kind of thing happens. They, they're, they're upset. They want to beg for another paper or another day for their paper. And so by the time the, the fourth one comes around, you know, a, a decent amount of students show up with no paper. And, uh, and Sproul goes down his list like normal, and he, he calls out a student's name, you know, Johnson. I see you haven't turned your paper in. Do you have it today? And, and he, he's, these students aren't as distraught as they used to be. They're not as um, alarmed. And, and, you know, this student, he calls on him, and the student says, no, I don't, but that's okay, Dr. Sproul. I'll, I'll have it back to you tomorrow. And, and Sproul goes, okay. And he he. He goes, Johnson, F. Gives him the F. And the student reacts and is upset. And he's, he's like, why don't I have another day? We always have another day to turn in our papers. It is not fair. And Sproul goes, fair? You want fair. Let's go back to that first paper. Let's see, you turn it in a day late. F. You see, church, our situation is the same. We have a patient, loving God who has, who has steadfast love for us. He has forbeared with us for years. And when we sometimes in this world see him give sin what it deserves, we say, that is not fair. We don't know what fair is. No, church, God has been fair from the beginning. If God were to, in this moment, give us what we deserve, we would all perish. The fact that God has poured out his grace on us, we should be astounded. We should be amazed. We should drop to our knees and worship right now. Our sin deserves God's wrath. We are guilty. We deserve death. And what, so what are we to do with that? That is terrible news. Don't, aren't we a gospel preaching church? Don't we believe in good news? Yes, we do. So here we go. That brings us to our final question. What is the solution to sin? What is the solution to sin? You see, church, there is nothing, there's nothing we could do. When you consider our completely sinful state, total depravity, there's nothing we could do to win back the favor of God. His wrath, his judgment against us, we, I've shown you, it's fair. It's what we deserve. We were his enemies. If you don't know God right now, you are his enemy. 
Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The first part of that verse is our answer. We, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That is the solution to our sin problem, the death of the son of God. Our relationship can be restored, reconciled by the death of his son, Jesus. How does this work? In just the verse before this, it says this. Paul writes in, in Romans 5, 9, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It says we are justified by his blood. Again, G, uh, Paul, he points to the suffering and the death, the very blood of Jesus on the cross for us as the way by which we are justified, the way we are set right, the way that we are declared righteous, we are restored to God. Jesus, God's son, he came to this earth as a man, but he never sinned. Think, think about this with me, church. He was tempted outwardly, the Bible tells us that. Jesus was tempted as we are outwardly, but he was perfect all the way down to his desires. He never desired anything sinful. In his divinity, like God the Father, he, was, he had a complete aversion to sin. He hated it. He didn't desire it. He didn't prefer it over his Father. And so he came to this earth as a man, and in his own words, do you remember what when, when Jesus told John the Baptist that you must baptize me, and John the Baptist says, no, you need to baptize me. And what, did, what was Jesus' response? He says, that I must, you must do this to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? It means Jesus came, he was baptized, he lived perfectly in our place. He lived perfectly in our place. He suffered and died on the cross. He suffered, think about this, he suffered the punishment of sin, death, that we deserved. He did all of that so that we could be restored to him, reconciled to God. That's the love and the grace of God to us through Jesus Christ. So what is our response? What is our response? The Bible's answer is this, faith, belief, Trust. Romans 3, 23 to 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through Jesus, which it says that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Here's our answer. To be received by faith. To be received by faith. So Paul is saying here, the way we enter into reconciliation with God is by simply looking to Jesus. We look to Jesus dying on the cross for us. We look to Jesus in his perfect life. We look to him in all that he did for us. And we have faith. It says we receive it by faith. That means we look to it and we say, yes, mine. That is faith. That is our solution to sin, church. There is no other. There is no other. Um, for our D-Now weekend, we've mentioned this. Our theme has been this one word, exchange. We've looked at four different kinds of exchanges in the Christian life. We've looked at the exchange of death for life, the exchange of me for Christ, 
hate for love, and call for comfort. And when we think about this solution to the problem of sin, we're, we're looking directly at those first two, the exchange of death for life and the exchange of me for Christ. How does this work? When I place my faith, my trust in the finished work of Christ on my behalf, my sin, my death, all that it deserves is exchanged for the eternal life that, that Christ purchased for me on the cross. I receive his perfection. I receive all that he did for me. I receive his power over sin. And also when I look to Christ in faith, I, I'm exchanging myself for Christ. I'm giving him all of my baggage, all of my weakness, all of my failures, and I'm taking on all that Christ is in his victory, in his righteousness, in his perfection. Has this happened in your life? Has this exchange happened in your life? I'm not talking about living a better life. I'm not talking about... That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about seeing your sin for what it is and then seeing the Savior for who he is. If that's happened in your life, church, rejoice. Rejoice. Because it's not anything that you've done. God has done this for you. And, and lastly, at church, this is where I want to wrap up. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, most of us, maybe all of us would say that. Excuse me. We would say we've received that gift. We will experience freedom from sin in this life. Paul writes, Romans 6, I believe, dominion will have no uh, I'm sorry, sin will have no dominion over you. In Romans 6, 6 through 7, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When we place our faith in Christ, we are not only brought into relationship with God, but Paul says that our old self, with its sinful desires, its actions, it's actually put to death along with Christ. Jesus died, and so has my sin. It has no power over me anymore. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with something, anxiety, anger, sinful lust, it has no power over you. It's put to death along with Christ. We are set free from the bondage of sin. Romans 6, 10 through 12 says, for the, death he died to sin, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, listen, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So because we are united to Christ in his death, we are dead to sin. We're united to him in his resurrection and that because of that, we are given new life to live for God, not for ourselves, not for our sinful flesh. Paul says we actually must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. It seems as if Paul knows this is not natural for us. Consider yourselves dead to sin. That is the truth. You are dead to sin. What an amazing truth. We need to think on this all day long. We need, to, we need to be reconciled to this truth constantly. I am no longer bound to sin. 
I don't have to obey these passions. I don't have to obey these desires. That's not me. I am a new person. Jesus, the reason, and the reason for that is not because of something I did. It is because Jesus put it to death. He, he drove nails through that sin. Um, it's very helpful that Paul mentions here sinful passions. We mentioned it earlier. Just as there are sinful desires and preferences, there are also godly There are godly, holy passions, holy desires. You see, when we become a Christian, when we are united to Christ, we are set free from sin. The Bible says that we are given the Holy Spirit. We are given the Spirit of God to come live inside of us. One of the main goals of the Spirit, as we see in Romans 8, is to put to death, to put sin to death. That is one of the main goals of the Spirit in our lives. The way that this happens The way I see that this happens, as we start to see God for who he is as good and just and righteous and loving, merciful, gracious, we see the free gift of salvation and of his spirit that he has given us. As we see those things, we start to love him. We start to desire him instead of the sinful passions of the world. We start to love and desire his word, his commandments, all that he is, all that he says, all that he does, because in the eyes of your heart, you see him in a new way. You see him for who he is. You see him as a gracious and loving father and a brother in Christ instead of a God who is looking to punish you. That's not true of you anymore, Christian. John Nielsen in his book says this, not only is the power of sin broken in Christians' lives, but the pleasure of sin begins to disappear as well. Our desires for sin are replaced with new desires, the desires of the God who lives within us by his Holy Spirit. For followers of Christ, sin, whether of thought, word, or deed, begins to lose its taste. It's less appealing and less satisfying. Church, this is not automatic. I'm sure there are Christians here who are we're saying, well, I don't see that in my own life. And this is not automatic. It's called sanctification. It happens over your lifetime. God does this work. But the truth is, is that we will gain victory over sin because we start to hate it as God hates it. As we grow in our knowledge of God, as we walk with him daily, we are changed all the way down to our desires. Okay, and this is about where I want to end. One last warning, brothers and sisters. We must not play with sin. We must take it seriously. Let's not forget the Israelites, those mentioned in Romans 1. They looked to the world, to the created things. They worshiped those things. They idolized those things. And as they did that more and more, what happened? God gave them over to their sinful desires. Their their hearts were hardened. You see, sin does not play nice. I've heard it said this way, sin does not stay where you last left it. It must be killed by the Spirit, by the promises of God, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. These sinful passions, these desires come and we must reject them. We confess them to God, to others. We live in community with others who can encourage us. But we do not let those, we do not let sin crouch at the door of our hearts. 
and let it stay there. We do not. Sin does not stay where you last left it. We, re- we must remember Jesus died not only to save us from the penalty of sin for forgiveness, he also he died to free us from the bondage and slavery of sin. He didn't die just so that we can go to heaven. Yes, that's true. He died so that we could become a holy people. So is there anything in your life right now that you are letting linger? Are you allowing some sin to lay around rather than seeking to kill it, confess it? A sinful action, attitude, whatever it is, today, today, you can lay it at the foot of the cross. You don't have to carry it. Jesus carried it for you on the cross. He drove a nail through that sin to kill it. And so we can do the same every single day. Um, As we move now, we're going to move now into a time of Lord's Supper. And how perfect is this? We're going to remember the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who gave it for us to be so that we could be freed from the penalty of sin and freed from the power of sin. Would would you now, as we do this, um, look afresh to the amazing grace and goodness of God shown to us in his Son? And I want to read this hymn to you. Um, This has been in my mind and heart over the past couple of days, and I think it's especially pertinent as we consider our own sin. It's a hymn called Come Ye Sinners. Part of it goes like this. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I, this is me now, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Would you pray with me? Lord, we we need nothing more or less than the very blood of our Savior. For anyone here who has not received that for the first time, please bring that now. I pray that that person right now would look to you in faith. They would turn from their sin. They would repent and place their faith in you as their Savior, as their Lord. For those of us who are Christians who are letting sin linger, no more, Lord. I pray right now we would confess it, turn from it. Lay it at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, this is, this is what's been true of me. This is what I've done. This is what I've said, what I've thought, what I've desired. And I give it to you and Jesus will forgive it. God will forgive it because of what Jesus did on the cross for us by his blood. Help us now to do that. Help us to continue in worship now as we consider the amazing, astounding grace and love that you have shown us in your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.